was already in a good mood this morning, but uh, I'm in a better mood now after seeing you guys. So uh, I love you a lot. I, I say that actually with the utmost sincerity. So um, I feel really blessed to be your pastor, and I feel blessed to uh, be back in community with you guys. Um, how's 2019 been for you so far? What are we, we can have been? Okay. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Uh, I, I asked this at the service last week, but a lot of you weren't here, so I want to know, how many of you guys made uh, New Year's resolutions? Yeah? Okay. Some of you. Uh, and most of you, how are you doing with keeping those? Anyone broken theirs yet? Oh, okay, good. It's good to hear. Uh, I know that this is a time of year that a lot of people do start thinking about uh, changes that they want to make for the upcoming year. I know I always like to take inventory of kind of how the last year went and then what kind of changes that I might want to make in the new year. And I know that that's uh, a common thing for a lot of people. And so around this time of year, uh, you see people coming up with uh, really it's probably, I don't know, the same five, six resolutions uh, that are super, super widespread. So it usually goes something like this. People want to exercise more, lose weight, they want to eat healthier, learn some, side, some kind of a new skill. Did any of you guys do Duolingo? Are you trying to learn a new language this year? Yeah, they always tell me, everyone's trying to learn a new language this year. Uh, get organized. Some people want to find love. For Christians, I know a lot of them like to commit to say, yeah, I want to read through the whole Bible uh, this year. Uh, all of those things can be good goals. They might be good goals. They might be bad goals. I guess it depends on what your motivation is for them. But I will say that uh, I, the, the thing that's probably tying all of these together, the reason why most people want to be doing those things that you see on that list is ultimately uh, they're hoping that they're going to be happier. Uh, they're, they're hoping that in some way they're going to be happier this year than they were last year. And they believe that accomplishing those things is going to bring about happiness in some way. And uh, I, I talk to people out on campus all the time. And one of the questions that I like to ask is, what do you think that the purpose in life is? And I would say probably the most common answer that I get is just to be happy. People kind of see happiness as the uh, end goal of, of what life is about. As long as you find your thing uh, that you enjoy and you're kind of being a good person, uh, being happy is really what it's about. We all have this intrinsic desire, okay? Now, uh, I'm actually, I'm not saying I agree with that answer that, that most people are giving, that happiness is the goal in life. Um, I would say that the goal in life, I've talked about this before, is really to love God and to love others. That's what Jesus said the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbors, you love yourself. He said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So I, I would say that they're a little bit off on the purpose of life of thinking that happiness is the end goal. However, I would also say uh, that that answer might not be quite as far off as we think that it is. Um, because I, I do believe that God has designed the world in such a way that if you do what's most important, if you learn to actually love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you learn to love others, you will, that will result in happiness. Happiness is going to be a natural byproduct of living in the world in the way that God has told us to. Now I want to pause there for a second because I think that sometimes... People think uh, happiness is like uh, a bad thing for Christians to want. I, I don't know. Maybe some of you guys don't feel that way. I hear this every now and then. Happiness is kind of uh, put down as this thing that's kind of of the world and it's fleeting and it doesn't really have any substance and, and we shouldn't really go after it. And, and I would actually push back against that. I think that uh, happiness is a good thing. It, it does, of course, depend on where that happiness is coming from. Uh, what, what source are you going to to be happy? I would actually argue that happiness and joy, while a lot of people make a distinction, 
Um, I would say really they're, they're pretty much the same word. They, they mean essentially the same thing. I think that there's everlasting joy and everlasting happiness. And I think there's fleeting joy and fleeting happiness. And we could get into a discussion. I don't, that's not the main thing I want to talk about today. If you want to argue with me about that, I'd be happy to talk to you after service. Um, but regardless, outside of the semantics, I think that uh, there, there is still this idea that God, at the very least, loves joy. I mean, even if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, what is the Spirit supposed to produce in us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Uh, we, we see all throughout the Bible, it talks about rejoicing. Uh, we see that, that joy is a hallmark of the Christian life. It's very, very important. It's something that we should be marked by. And since I believe that joy and happiness really have a lot of similarity, I would say God wants this for you. That he does want you to be happy. Now, with that being said... I think that sometimes we get confused about how happiness is attained. Um, oftentimes we have this idea that comfort is a necessary prerequisite for happiness. And that's where the Christian would say, no, I disagree with that. Because while there, ha- happiness can be found from a lot of different sources, even though the ultimate source is God, even worldly things that you find happiness from are still created by God. Um, the, the, the world, for the most part, is only able to find happiness when circumstances are right. And God says, no, I, I want to give you joy that's so deep that I'm going to implant my spirit within you. It's going to produce this fruit in you that, that gives you joy. And it's going to allow you to rejoice in all circumstances. That's why James could write, consider it pure joy when you go through trials of many kinds. Okay, notice that the the circumstance is actually the exact opposite circumstance of what you would expect to bring joy, happiness, whatever you want to call it. Yet he says, I want you to consider it joy when you go through those trials. Right, and we actually see this play out in the scriptures too. We see that when uh, the apostles get arrested, that they would go and they would rejoice and that they've been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. We see that there was nothing that could be done to keep these people down. They're, they had found joy or happiness on such a level that was so great that their circumstances couldn't stop it. Now, the reason that I've been talking so much about happiness is because I believe that all humans, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, all of us have this great desire for it. It's a very natural thing, and that's why I get this answer all the time on campus, that that's what people think that the purpose in life is, because we're all after it in one way or another. That's why we make our New Year's resolutions. That's why we do very many of the things that we do in life, is because we're trying to get after that. Now, the Christian understands that the the true goal should actually be God. And as you find God, he's the ultimate and perfect source of joy and happiness. He's the one that's able to create that in you. But God does want this for us. You know, God is the creator of the world, and he's designed the world in such a way that if you follow and make the choices that he's commanded us to make, they're going to result in good for you. It might not always result in comfort, but it's always going to result in joy if you do it with the right heart. And so what I would say is we're really starting to tread into the realm of what does it mean to live in a wise way? How do we make godly choices? How do we make good choices? And so over these next couple months, we're going to be starting a series, and it's called Words of the Wise. And we're going to be looking at the wisdom literature that's in the Bible. And wisdom literature uh, includes some of the Psalms. It's Proverbs. It's uh, Song of Songs. 
It's uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, and all of these books are written in such a way that they're designed to help us understand God and the world that he created and how we can make good choices within it. Simply defined, wisdom is the ability to make godly choices. Okay? And so as we're reading through this wisdom literature, it's going to be very highly practical kind of stuff. And, And it's going to be very good because... Since God designed the world in such a way that if you follow him, it results in joy. Because God is, God is after his own joy and he's after your joy. If you follow and live in this wise way, it's going to result in the fruit of what I've been talking about that we all want. Which is happiness. Okay? And that's a, that's a good and okay thing for us to desire that. But, it, but it's most important that we understand that God is the ultimate source of that. God created joy. God created happiness. And God is the author of wisdom. I love the fact that, just even remembering that God is the creator, if he tells us to do something, or tells us not to do something, it's always going to be for our good. And it's not always obvious what the right choice is. You know, like, I I know there are so many times in my life that if not for my study of the scripture, or if not from counsel from godly people, I would have made a different decision because of what looked right to me at the time. But as time went on and I got perspective, I saw, man, it was really smart for me to actually heed what God said here. That really saved me from a lot of destruction because we can be really short-sighted. So often we only look at what's in front of us. How great is it that we have a God who's eternal, limitless in perspective, and has told us the right way to live. And he's written it down. We can study it. We, we, can, we can become wise. You don't have to be 90 years old to be a wise man. You guys right now, in your, your teens and in your early 20s, you can be very wise people because you have the words of God available to you. And you can learn how to live in this world in a way that pleases Him, in a way that ultimately will, in your great, will result in your greatest joy. And so with that being said, I want to kick off our series today primarily looking at uh, the beginning of Proverbs. But before we do that, I want us to pray together and then we'll jump into the text I've got for today. God, uh, we love you, and I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you are ultimately wise, that you are infinitely wise, that you are the source of wisdom. That you are the creator, that all good things flow from you, that we can trust you, Lord. We thank you that you lead us in the ways that are right, and God, uh, we pray that you would make us wise people. God, that is my solemn prayer for our church over these next several weeks that we're going to be in this study that uh, as we pour into your word and see what you have to say about the way that we should live in this world, uh, that, that you would make us wise. That you would make us people that are able to make godly choices. We love you, Lord. Uh, We pray that you'd be with us here today. Uh, Remove any distractions from our minds. And uh, just help us to focus on you. Minister to us today, God. We love you. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 1. And uh, we're going to start in verse 20. And read through the end of the chapter. And uh, in this, you're going to see wisdom is personified. As uh, kind of this, this woman that's calling out in the street. So let's see what he has to say here. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the end of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. 
How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Alright, so this is both an encouraging passage and a scary passage at the same time. Right? And so I'm going to draw out a couple uh, observations that I have from this. And the first thing is that wisdom wants to be found. I love this picture the author is painting for us, that wisdom is standing at the city gate, it's in the square, you think of the the most populous place, Uh, if you were to put this on our campus, it's like wisdom standing out there on Main Street, uh, shouting, come, learn, come, come, leave your simple ways, learn what I have to say. How awesome is it that that wisdom, it's not in some back room or in a VIP club that has a high cover charge or or something like that that makes it inaccessible for people. No, wisdom is saying, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're rich, poor, young, old, black, white, wherever you are, I'm going to go to the most public place and I want to make myself available for all to know. I think that we have this fallacy sometimes that you think that you can't be wise until you're at least like 50 or 60 years old. And that's just not true. Uh, The the scripture's saying right here, wisdom is shouting out in the square for us right now. Hopefully, you don't have to wait that long to be wise. Wisdom wants to be found. And I also see that as wisdom is calling out, it's calling out above the noise. There's noisy streets as it's doing this. So yes, wisdom wants to be found, it's calling out, but guess what? There's a lot of noise that can distract us from it too. And I think that all of you experience that on a daily basis. That you realize, hey, you come to church, you hear wisdom, or you get up in the, bor- in the morning and you read your Bible and you learn what's right and you hear wisdom, but then you go out and there's a lot of noise, isn't there? There's a lot of messages that tell you the exact opposite of wisdom. You know, uh, Jesus talks about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him, and then you go out and every bit of advertising you see talks about how you're the most important person in the world. And you should treat yourself all the time. and you know, Whatever else it may be. And it just exalts you. And yet in the scriptures we turn and we see humility. And we see that we should exalt God. And we start to get confused because wisdom is calling out. But there's a lot of noise in the street that's distracting us. But man, may we be people that learn to hear that clear call of wisdom above the noisy streets. And so as wisdom is calling out. It calls not just so that we can hear and learn, but so that we can hear and apply. Wisdom calls for both learning and action. When she lifts up her voice, it's not just to instruct, but to instruct and to inspire action. 
You see, you would think that this kind of goes without saying. Like, what, what good does it do to, like, hear something and not act upon it? Um, but I, I think that this is worth saying because we do this all the time. Like, a lot of the time we hear good stuff, we even understand it. But the hard part is actually putting it into practice. And when you see what wisdom is talking about, as a matter of fact, when it got into the, what I would say, kind of the scary part of the passage where it talks about how, because you didn't listen, I'm going to laugh at you in your day of calamity. Notice what, what the indictment is. It's not that they never heard. It's that they didn't do. They, they, had, they had plenty of opportunity to hear. But they chose to ignore it. They chose not to apply it in their lives. And so my question is, man, like, how, how long will you continue to hear the voice of wisdom, but choose to reject acting upon it in your life? Is there any place where God is calling out to you, where there's wisdom, where, where you realize, I need to change my way. I need to either stop doing something that I'm doing right now. I need to start doing something I'm not doing. Whatever it may be, you, you realize that there's a clear call of wisdom in your life, but you choose to reject it. You're not always going to immediately feel the negative results of that. But eventually you will. And that's what we see here. Wisdom talks about, man, at, at some point your calamity is going to come and in that day, I'm going to laugh at you. Because you chose to not do what I was saying. Now I will say, this, this passage sounds like kind of harsh and vindictive. Like, it, it, it sounds almost like indifferent to the person, like, the, like wisdom hates the person and is like glad to see their downfall. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily what the author is trying to communicate. I certainly don't think that the author is trying to communicate that God thinks it's funny uh, when people are destroyed by their sin. Uh, matter of fact, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God's heart is for repentance. God's heart is for people to hear and to turn. Okay, that's actually why wisdom is calling out in the street in the first place. If, if, all, it wanted, if, if all God wanted was just to see people uh, be ruined in their foolishness, then wisdom wouldn't be calling out at all. So God wants us to hear. And God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. This picture of wisdom laughing, I, I don't think it's so much to say the idea that there's an enjoyment there. But really it's to illustrate this principle of you reap what you sow. If you choose to continue to reap in foolishness, wisdom essentially is going to testify against you. In a sense, it's like, man, I told you over and over again, you shouldn't have been doing this, or you should have been doing this. And, and eventually, you're going to come to have to eat the fruit of what it is that, that you were sowing. And I think that that's the picture that's being communicated here. You even see this in verse 31, where it says, Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way, and have their fill of their own devices. We can only go for so long, continuing to live in foolishness until it catches up to us. And that can be dangerous, right? Because, um, as I was saying before, you don't always feel it immediately. You know, uh, take almost anything. You know, if you choose to, to eat really unhealthy, you, you don't feel the results of that immediately. But you do it over a long period of time. All of a sudden, you find yourself that you're in a spot where, where your body is in really bad condition now. And, and your day of, of calamity has come. Okay? It, you realize that you're, you're eating the fruit of the choices that you make. And, and we could go to example after example after example of, hey, you don't always realize it right away. But eventually, your choices will catch up to you. 
History is littered with examples of this. Uh, some of you guys know I'm, I'm a big history buff. My degree uh, from college was actually in social studies education. So I, I love history. I'm kind of a nerd. Um, and so over Christmas break, I had some, some time to do a lot of like just recreational reading. And so the book I've chosen to read right now is called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's like a thousand page book about how Nazi Germany came to rise and how it fell. I'm not all the way through it yet, but I do know the whole story, but I'm just learning it in more detail now. Uh, but but it, it's really interesting because right now I'm in this spot where uh, Hitler and the other Nazis are, are kind of just seeing this meteoric rise in, in power. And, and they're, they're, as you already know, unscrupulous, terrible, evil people uh, that are doing all sorts of backstabbing, uh, plotting, uh, murdering people, uh, all, all sorts of awful things like that, which would, of course, get even worse once they get into power. But in their minds, it seems like everything is going right. I mean, they're living the high life. They're moving their way up into the highest levels of government. They've gained control over one of the world's most powerful countries. Uh, they, they have thousands of people doing their Nazi salute at these rallies and, and, and uh, voting for them in elections and all these different kinds of things. It seems like they're at the, the greatest spot that they could be. As a matter of fact, when they instituted uh, this new government, when Hitler came to power in 1933, uh, they, they called it the Thousand Year Reich. And Reich is just kind of a German word that essentially means like realm or reign, like kingdom might be a good word to, to translate that for. And so there was this idea where it's like, this was the third Reich, but we're going to call it the thousand year Reich because it's going to last for a thousand years. Well, they were a little bit off on their math. Um, it lasted for 12 years, but, uh, you know, just a small miscalculation. Um, after 12 years, they finally came to reap what they had sown. And, and as these violent men uh, came to, to power, as they backstabbed, as they murdered, as they did awful things, as they brought war across the entire world, really, eventually it came back on their heads. And at the end, every single one of them either was killed or committed suicide, and their country lie in complete ruin. And that's not even to speak of what's going to happen to them in eternal judgment. You will eat the fruit of what you sow. You may not see it right away. And even here in Proverbs 1, uh, we, we're going to have to be selective on what we go through. I can't preach through verse by verse on everything like I did in 1 Corinthians. Um, but even here, right before this, uh, the, the author of Proverbs, Solomon, was talking about how don't, don't go with violent men that go out to seek money. He's talking about staying away from these robbers that want to go make a quick buck by robbing somebody. Right? Right? It, it, it seems good at first. Hey, I got free money real quick. That was easy. All I had to do was beat somebody up and now I got all their money. But eventually that's going to come back. And you're going to eat the fruit of that. You, you will pay for it eventually. And most of the time, those sins are going to come back on you even in this life. And if, if you're one of the people that, that does escape that, and for whatever reason, you may end up dying in peace because of your sin, eventually there's still going to be eternal judgment. You see, God is a perfect judge. There's nobody that's getting away with not reaping what they, what they sowed. Like, not on their own, they're not. And, and so the reality is all of us are going to have to stand before God one day and answer for everything that we've done. And it will be time for us to eat the fruit of what it is that, that we've done. And while we might be sitting here after, you know, I just talked about this extreme example of the Nazis and you might be feeling pretty good about yourself because who doesn't feel good about themselves when they compare themselves to Nazis? Um, <laughs> but when you compare yourself to God, it changes 
and you see, oh my goodness, like I've, I've sinned a lot. Like I'm, I'm guilty. I don't want to have to answer for that. I don't want to have to reap what I've sown. As far as all of the, the wrong things I've done, all the sin that I've committed against him and against others. And so this is where the gospel comes in. Or what you might even call the scandal of grace. This is the, the one place where we don't have to reap what we sowed because Jesus chose to reap what we sowed so that we could reap what he sowed. Now it's kind of confusing, right? But Christ chose to reap what we sowed so that we could reap what he sowed. And the, the Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, this is, this is the gospel in that while there is this principle of, hey, whatever it is that you do, eventually that's going to come back to you. This incredible thing that happened at the cross says, you know what? This is one circumstance where, where someone is still going to have to pay. Someone is still going to have to reap what you sowed. But Jesus is going to take it in your place. And so it's not going to have to be you that does it. You can be free from the guilt. You can be free from having to answer for the evil and wrong that you've done because Jesus in his perfect love chose to take that sin upon himself for you. This is the gospel. That we don't have to pay the penalty that we deserve because Jesus chose to pay it for us. Man, that, that is good news. That is good news. And so I would say... That is, we've been talking about wisdom this morning. The epitome of wisdom, the highest level, that the most important thing that you can do is come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn to Him. Hear His words. If, if, if nothing else, and I hope that you become a very wise person and you learn so much and you learn to apply all these different things, but the, it starts with this. If you do not know Jesus... If you have not trusted in him to be the one that will reap what you sow so that you can reap what he sowed, which is perfect, eternal life and righteousness, then I trust, I implore you to do that today. Make a decision. The, the beautiful thing is that we are saved by grace through faith. You see, Jesus is the one that's already done the work. All we have to do is say, I, I believe that you're my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask that you forgive me, Jesus. I pray that you take my sins upon you. And that you welcome me into your kingdom. And he will. With that, you become a child of God. And there's a transformation that starts to take place. And so, while that's the first step, that we would be people that heed the words of Jesus, as he himself said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he invited us to, he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we be people that come to him. And as we come to him, after that, may we be people that learn to walk in the way that he walked. That learn to exhibit and demonstrate the same wisdom that he walked with. Okay? And so we, we need to hear the words of wisdom, but then we also need to seek it out ourselves, too. And so as I, I want to read the beginning of Proverbs chapter 2. It picks up right after where we left off earlier this morning. It says this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, 
if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I love that this passage comes right after what we just read in Proverbs 1, right? Because in Proverbs 1... We see this picture where wisdom is standing in the street, calling out above the noise, and telling us to come to it. Yet here in this passage, what do we see? We see that we're called to be ones that call out to wisdom. It's like a game of Marco Polo, kind of, except you're both trying to find each other. Marco Polo, one of the people is trying to get away at Marco Polo. Right? I don't know, I haven't played that game in a long time. But it's a call and, it's a call and response thing, right? So, so wisdom is, is calling out to us. Uh, it's making this, this initial move. God has come to us. There are many things that he does to pursue us even when we're not pursuing him. But at the same time, if we want to be wise people, there also has to be initiative on our, on our end that we would be people that learn to seek him out. And that we would be people that learn to, to try to find wise uh, ways to live ourselves. And we see that uh, Solomon says, man, I want you to do this. I-, I want you to prize this in a way that's higher than the other things that you seek after. I want you to seek for this like you would seek for hidden treasure. Right? If, if you knew that there was some, like, I don't know, Count of Monte Cristo style. There was some treasure that was hidden in an island somewhere that's going to make you one of the richest guys in the world, you would find that island, right? You would do everything you can to search for that. Psalm is saying, I want you to do that with wisdom. <clears throat> Seek after it. Learn it. Get, get to know what God says about the right way to live, right? Because he's the source. What does he say there in verse 4? If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so Solomon helps us see that not only should we be people that seek wisdom, but he shows us where does it come from. The source is the Lord. So ultimately, what's he telling us? He's telling us, I want you to draw close to God. I want you to seek him with everything that you are. And as you do that, you will become wise. He's going to teach you more and more about who he is. He's going to teach you about who you are. He's going to teach you about how this world works. And he's going to teach you how to navigate through it effectively. So seek wisdom like silver. Make great efforts to get to know God and what he has to say. And so as I work towards closing here, I just want to end with a few practical steps that you can take to seek wisdom like hidden treasures. What are some things that you can do in your life to become a wise person? And the first thing that I would say is that you need to pray for wisdom. The scripture explicitly tells us to do this. James 1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so James is helping us see, hey, are you a fool? Do you, do you need to get wise? Do you want to? Then cool. Just ask God for wisdom. Even if, you, even if you don't consider yourself a fool. Even if you just realize you need to be wiser. Ask God. And he'll give it. But we need to ask in faith. Do you believe that God actually wants you to be a wise person? And so really this is step one. Pray. God, make me wise. Please do. And believe that he's going to do that. Okay? And as you pray earnestly, I believe you'll also be putting some of these other things into practice. 
He's going to be spurring you to do some of these other things that I'm talking about. Which the next thing would be to read his word. You probably saw that one coming. Um, but, but the reality is that the word of God, I mean, it's a treasure house full of, of wisdom. That, that teaches us more than anything you're ever going to learn at this university could. Or anything you're going to learn in a job or anything else. That his word is going to teach you how to be wise. I love this in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is telling his young disciple Timothy, I want you to really search out the scriptures. Read those because they're going to make you wise for salvation. They're not going to save you. But they're going to make you wise for salvation. What does that mean? They're going to help you understand how that comes. How? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, this scripture is going to be profitable for you, for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke. We see all these different things, ways that you need to learn how to live in this world. The scripture is going to teach you. So read it and get to know it. If you, if you neglect scripture, you're never going to become a very wise person. The next thing I would say, observe the world around you. I love this proverb. Proverbs 6, uh, 6 through 9 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. All right, so here's Solomon, wisest man that ever lived. He's saying, hey, uh, uh, I want you to go learn from the ant. <laughs> go outside and, and watch the ants and see what they do, and you're going to learn a lesson by this. And Solomon said, hey, you want to learn work ethic? Learn it from the ants. And here's the thing. As I was saying, God's the creator of this world. He's created it and designed it in a way that we can observe it and learn so much about him. And we can learn so much about how to live. I know that I have, have learned so many valuable lessons about how to, to live and how to be wise just from observing the world around me. I mean, you want to learn about joy? Uh, get a puppy. Right? Like, <laughs> observe loyalty from a golden retriever, whatever. There, go observe the world around you and learn about how to be wise. You know, you guys are, are at the university right now, so I would assume that most of you enjoy learning. Most of you enjoy observing the world and coming to understand it more. And man, I think that's a good thing because as you're in your studies, it, it doesn't just have to be here at church. You know, yeah, the scripture is a great direct source of wisdom. But as you're in your biology class and you're seeing how God designed the, the human body or, or how he designed uh, uh, DNA, whatever else, let that be something that, that teaches you about him. You know, as, as you're learning history, just even as I used the example before uh, about the, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, learn from that. Learn, learn how uh, to be wise from people's, both their successes and failures in the past. Whatever it may be, as you observe the world around you, you'll grow to be a wise person. The next thing I would say is that you should actively seek wise teachers. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So we come back to this idea again. If you want to be wise, go find people and actively ask them to help teach you. 
Okay? Do you have people in your life that are helping teach you? You know, find someone that you can learn from. Find somebody that can disciple you. Uh, listen to sermons. Read books. Whatever it may be. Start gleaning wisdom from others that can teach you good stuff. That's what wise people do. I would also say, uh, the next thing, be humble enough to listen to correction. This is huge. Proverbs actually talks about this a lot, but for sake of time, I only put one of the verses down. But it says, Proverbs 15, 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. You do not know everything. Nobody does, okay? Like, other than God. God's the only one that knows everything. So that means that you're going to be wrong sometimes. And if you want to be wise, you need to learn how to listen to people that are telling you when you're wrong. If you don't gain this skill, you're going to have a very, very hard time. Probably almost an impossible time growing your wisdom. You need to be around people, first off, that love you enough to point out when you're wrong. Which that in and of itself is hard. Because most of us have a difficult time finding people that care about us enough, that love us enough, and that trust our relationship enough to point out to us when we're doing something wrong. But, but Solomon's saying here, man, listen to this reproof. The, the one that does this is going to dwell among the wise. And so I would say, do you have people in your life that love you enough to point out when you're out of line? When you're misstepping, when you're acting a fool, whatever it may be, do you have people that are going to help you with that? And also, are you willing to help others with that, right? If you want to be wise, you need people to help you with that. But also, if you want your friends to be wise, then you need to love them enough to point out to them when they're out of line. And this is not an easy thing to do, but praise God that I have people in my life that have done this for me on many occasions. That see when I'm out of line. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's with the way that I'm acting. Maybe it's with something I'm teaching. Whatever it may be where they help correct me. Okay? And you'll see all the time, like, this, Jesus did this with his disciples. Paul did this with Peter, the apostle. Priscilla and Aquila did this with Apollos, who was teaching in Corinth. We see that the Christian church is strengthened by people that love each other enough to reprove and to point out flaws in a loving way so that we can grow. I would also say, um, with, with that, one, one caveat, by the way. Just because somebody tells you you're doing something wrong, it doesn't automatically mean that you're wrong. Um, so, in the words of Rob Furia, uh, listen to all counsel, heed wise counsel. Okay? Uh, not all counsel you get is going to be good, but you should just listen to it. And then, as you listen to it, think about it. Actually listen, pray, consider, maybe talk with other people about it. And if it's wise and good, then heed it. If somebody gave you bad advice, which is going to happen sometimes too, fine, throw it out. You don't have to listen to absolutely everything. But if you don't listen to anything, you're not going to be wise. 